This is The Mouth Off, storytelling with Kion Wolf at the Mark Twain House. I'm Kion Wolf. First up, the one and only Larry Elsner. Along with making the best beef jerky in the whole world, he owns and operates a driving service. And as you'll hear, that kind of work brings him a lot of stories. In fact, you're about to hear two stories of his from two different recordings of The Mouth Off. The first was from the June 9th, 2017 show, and the theme was Take My Advice. The second one was from April 2018, and the theme was Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time. Oh, and you should know that throughout this whole episode, you'll hear some heartfelt profanity. All right, so I was actually born in West Hartford. My mom and dad worked in Hartford. My uncles and aunts worked in Hartford. All my relatives worked in Hartford. When I married my wife, we moved to Wethersfield, and that's close enough to Hartford, but tonight we came so I can entertain you. I'm in the limousine business. I've been driving for a little over 40 years now. I'm 38, and I started early. (laughs) So I want to share a story with you, which (laughs) I don't say it's near and dear, I worked at Fisher's Package Store downtown on Asylum Street for many years, and we used to deliver liquor, and we used to take care of the the corporate executives and things down in Hartford. So one of the owners would sit in a chair, and he would chew on a cigar. He would never, ever smoke it. And he looked at me one day, and he says, Elsner, you want to be successful? There's nothing sweeter than to kiss the customer's ass. (laughs) So 40 years in the limousine business, I've tried to apply that. Anybody can drive a car. But when you give them a little extra something, they appreciate it. So I had a customer in New York. I would leave at 4 o'clock in the morning, go down to 18th Street, New York. And I had this guy as a a corporate executive come up to Hartford probably three or four years. Loved the way I drove, always asked for me. And he was the type of guy that would sit in the back seat and say, Larry, how are you going up to Connecticut? I said, geez, I don't know, Mr. Jones. He said, well, let me give you some advice. You get down First Avenue, you get on the FDR Drive, and then you go north. And then you do this, and then you do that. So this went on for three years. So finally, I wanted to reciprocate with him. So I turned around and said, Mr. Jones, I said, let me ask you a question. Do you have huddles? He said, what's a huddle? I said, a huddle is when you have a, a meeting with your people. Do you, do you commend them? Do you chat with them, go in their office? Or do you have an open-door policy? Do you let people come in and out of your office? He said, geez, I... I don't know, I guess I do. I said, I'd like to do something for you. I'm going to give you a little advice. I said, I have the chairman of the board of your company next week in my sedan. So what I'd like to do is I would like to have you and him and I sit down and have a meeting. He said, well, why why would you do that? I said, because for the last three years, you've been telling me how to do my job, and I would certainly love to be able to tell you how to do your job. And that's, that's short of, and, and I'm sure you've all done it, whether you're in a cab or in a sedan or in a limousine, you always say to the driver, do you know where you're going? <laughs> you, you think after 40 years and driving 50,000 miles a year, which in math is about 2 million miles, I should know where the hell I'm going. If not, I wouldn't be doing this job. <laughs> so my advice was, instead of turning around, I always kept my mouth shut in some of these situations. I could have easily turned around and said, you know what, bud? Why don't you shut your pie hole and let me do my job? (laughs) I had this guy one evening, and it was his 21st birthday. So I drove this big, brand-new stretch limousine to Bristol, Connecticut. And I knew there was going to be a problem, but it was a good idea at the time because I wanted to help this guy celebrate his birthday. So I drive up, and seven of his buddies and the birthday boy, they come out with a 30-pack, and they put it in the limousine. And they said, we're going to party. I'm 21 years old. I'm a real stud. I'm going to get drunk. I said, good. Drink your ass off, and if you puke, puke outside the car. 
oh yeah, no problem, no problem. I take them to downtown Hartford, and we're at the bars, and they're drinking, and the 30-pack was going, and his friends were drinking. They come out about a little after two. Now we're on our way back to Bristol. They could hardly see straight. So now in the stretch limousines, they have a partition, if anybody's ever been in a stretch limousine. So I'm driving along, minding my own business, and I got the partition up, and they're still drinking and they're laughing, and all of a sudden I hear, I couldn't see anything. So I put the partition down and I look, and all I saw was his legs, and his pants were down around his ankles. So what had happened, he had climbed out on the roof of the vehicle. Now I'm not going fast, mind you, but the little bastard got up there. <laughs> so I pulled the car over and I said, look, get down or your ride is over. Oh, you know, I'm 21 years old, I'm a big shot, I'm drunk as a skunk, and I, I'm gonna do what the hell I feel like doing. Fine, get in the friggin' car. I can't use the word, because it's just, I, I wanna say it, but I'm, my wife is here tonight, my sister-in-law is here tonight, my brother-in-law is here, my doctor is here, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> so anyway, so now we're over by Lake Compounds, the Route 229, and I'm going slow. And once again, I hear, I figured, you little bastard. He went back up on the roof. And what he did, he was on all fours. He pulls his pants down, and he moons the guy behind us, one of his buddies that was following us. So as I'm driving along, he's up on the roof. All of a sudden, this car comes racing up next to me. And that guy going, pull over, pull over, you son of a bitch, pull over. And he flashes his badge. I went, oh, shit. What, what did I do? I had no idea. Pull the fucking car over. Get over there. So I, I pull over. He says, get your license and registration out. Unlock the back door. Okay, take it easy. I'm just a driver. Grabs the kid, has a few words with him. Let's him get back in the car, and he comes over and he says, you know, you're responsible for the people in the back of your car. I says, wait a minute, officer. Not for nothing. I get paid to drive the car. This kid wants to be an asshole. That, don't put that on me. There's plenty of assholes in my life, but don't make him, I, I'm not one of his assholes. You know, bullshit. He says, you take this kid immediately home, and you don't move until I get there. So this kid thought it was a good idea at the time to climb up on the top of my stretch limousine, pull his pants down, moon the guy behind him. I get him back to Bristol. I said, don't move. Ten minutes goes by. I hear this. Here comes the cop. Red lights and siren. He comes up to the car. He said, thank you. I said, okay, officer. Put the kid in handcuffs for indecent exposure, I said to him, what a great idea, happy birthday, asshole. Thanks, Larry Elsner. Next up, we remember John Farrell, who's also known as Fast Jack. He died on August 1st at his home in Manchester. I first met Fast Jack when he was on the Colin McEnroe show on Connecticut Public Radio, where I work. While he was there, he set up a table to show us how he'd use sleight of hand and distraction to fool his card game opponents. Now, we were really easy targets in that newsroom, but as you'll hear from his story, conning people is not for the faint of heart. He was our featured speaker at the September 2015 show, and the theme was Caught in the Act, stories about not getting away with it. 
I'm from Manchester, Connecticut, and I had a phone call one particular day from a partner of mine in New England. He was from Milford, Massachusetts. <clears throat> His name was Buster Germano, and he was also a gambler like myself. And, and any time a good piece of business came up, these people would call me because I was the mechanic. I was the guy that switched in the dice or switched in a cold deck and had my partners win the money. My job was to, to execute uh, these uh, different moves. So Buster called me and he said that he just acquired the rights to a, from gambling to a big clam bake. In, in the 80s and 70s, clam bakes were very big in New England. Lobster bakes, etc., etc. This particular clam bake was for the uh, greater Boston longshoremen or dock workers. And there was 300 of them along with their guests. They were going to bus them in from Boston to Milford, Mass. for their uh, for the festivities of the day, which is at New England Clam Bake. And we were allotted the uh, the gambling rights. So Buster and I agreed that we would give them dice. This particular day, we were going to give them a dice table, and it was going to be a casino-style table because... Atlantic City had been open since 1976, and gamblers had become acclimated to casino-style gambling, which is a lot different than rough and tumble. So I uh, commandeered a, a dice table, shipped it up to Milford, Mass., to a clam bake grounds called the uh, Porthole. We set up the table. I brought in two di professional dice dealers from New York, and if you're a little familiar with the casino style table there's two dice dealers and and there's a stick man and I was the stick man I controlled the tempo of the game and anytime I wanted to switch dice whether it be winners or losers I did it at my discretion and at the end of the day we would win the money I set up the table and it was about 11 o'clock and the buses came in they bust them in from Boston and I knew it was going to be a great day and I, I watched these guys get off the buses and most of them had to be from South Boston because they looked awful Irish and awful tough looking. These were some tough hombres. And of course, being a stock, uh, a dock worker, you had to be. And about 12 noon, they started feeding everyone. And uh, we set up the table, we went to work, we started, uh, we opened the table. And prior to opening the table, our connection in Boston had told us there was going to be a bookmaker. A bookmaker is a guy them days that took sports betting, illegal sports betting. And he would, most bookmakers like today, they, they become uh, not wealthy, but they, they make a strong living and, uh, because it's, uh, the odds are in their favor and they, they make a very good living. Most of booking today is done offshore and, yeah, in Costa Rica and uh, Central America. But this bookmaker, he was one of the guests, and we were told that he carries normally in his pocket 10,000 cash wherever he goes, and he loved to shoot dice. Well, for Buster and I, this was music to our ears. This was going to make our day, our week, our month. This was 1980. So I opened the game, and within two hours, I had won $2,800, which wasn't a big payday, but it was significant. But the phantom bookmaker never put his belly to the table. He never came to the table, and I was kind of puzzled. So I asked Buster to find out what happened to this guy. And consequently, I found out shortly after that 
he didn't understand the Vegas type layout, the casino style dice game. He only knew rough and tumble, you fade me, I fade you, the way they played in bachelor parties. And I see a lot of you older gentlemen here. This is almost a Medicare mob. <laughs> you older guys, you know, used to wear, bachelor parties were big in New England and uh, there was always a dice game in the 70s, 60s, 80s, even into the 90s, I guess, until casinos came in. That was the end of private gambling. So consequently, Buster came back and told me that that's the reason he didn't, he was embarrassed because he didn't understand the layout. So I gave Buster five dice, five normal dice, and I told him to go into the, go into the pavilion and commandeer a picnic table, put a backboard up. We had three other men with us and get the other three partners and start playing and and corral this bookmaker, and I'll be over in about 10 or 15 minutes because I have to put this, secure the chips because the chips were money. So I, I did that, and I went under the pavilion, and lo and behold, they were shooting dice. But they weren't playing on the picnic table. They were playing on the ground. And that was a big no-no. I was surprised that they did this. That was a total no-no simply because you had a lot of spectators that were standing over us, it was too much exposure for me because it was a hot July day. I was going in and out of my pockets, switching the dice. And I knew about the exposure because I'd been in this situation a couple other times in my career. But anyway, money makes you do funny things, and I dove in, like all my partners. And sure enough, within an hour and a half, we had the bookmaker stuck three to $5,000. And we were well on our way of taking his money and putting it in our pocket. I played another round, probably another round, where plenty of spectators. And when there are spectators, that's when a problem arises because they have nothing to do. Their adrenaline isn't flowing like the players, and they're not in the mix. They're not in the heat of the moment. And sure enough, out of the blue, I heard some guy holler, Hey, that guy in the corner is switching dice. He's going in and out of his pocket. Well, when I heard that, I didn't know what to do, and I knew it was me, because I'm the only dice switcher. <laughs> and consequently, I, I kind of attacked the guy. I, I, uh, I had a little nerve when I, when I was younger, and I, I, uh, I confronted the guy, and when I did, he tried to go in my pocket. And I couldn't have that, because if I got caught with these dice, the problem, there wouldn't be any more problem, because I'd probably been gone by then, and probably, I mean, hurt or killed. So as soon as he tried to go in my pocket, I shoved him, and he hit the ground, and I took off. In my vernacular, we call it taking it on high, and I took it on high. I really, I was in pretty good shape. I was playing a lot of tennis, and, and uh, <laughs> I looked in back of him, in back of me, and I, I had a pretty good lead. And I said, I just might, I might win this one. And as I was running, I heard gunshots. And I said, wow, I said, it had to be me to shoot that. I was, it's not deer season, so. <laughs> so um, I continued to run, and just as I heard the gunshots, <clears throat> not to be overly graphic, I soiled myself. I mean, real bad. <laughs> That's just the reaction I think most people would have, and I had it. 
<laughs> to be honest with you, I was terrified. I was really, this is, I was really terrified. I continued to run. I came to a road. I crossed the road. I didn't look right or left. I just went, as they say in German, gerade raus. I went straight ahead. The cars were honking the horns and people were hollering at me, you crazy, you nuts. Yeah, I was nuts. I had 50 guys chasing me. And let me tell you, folks, when this happens, it's mob rule. It's the Wild West, and I mean the Wild West. I knew I had a big problem. And I saw a farmhouse. I went to the farmhouse. I knocked on the front door to no avail. No one was home. I went out in the back. I saw a barn. I went into the barn. It was a horse barn, and there were two or three horses in stalls. I took the dice and the money out of my pocket. I dropped it on the ground. I picked up the big pile of horse manure and put it on my money and the, and the dice because I didn't want these guys to get these. I knew they were going to get me, but I, they couldn't get the dice. As soon as I did that, I hid behind. I hid in one of the stalls, and two guys came in. They outlasted the, the mob. Everyone, everyone else went back to the, uh, the clam bake grounds except these two. And these were two tough hombres, and I mean tough. Two Irish guys, from, had to be from Southie. They came in, they, uh, they grabbed me, they took me out, they kicked me and kicked me and hit me and kicked me, and, and I was pretty banged up, and I knew my only chance was to pretend that I was passed out, which I did. And uh, maybe they'd take it easy on me, and they, they did that also. And, uh, and I could, it was quiet, and I said, wow, they must be leaving. All of a sudden, I heard one of them say, let's take them back to the clam bake and hang them. <laughs> and I think I resoiled myself, too. <laughs> so one of, them, one of them threw me over his shoulder like I was a rag doll, and that was no easy task because I know at that time I weighed about 190 pounds. I knew my only chance as soon as I got to the road that I was going to fight them. The cars would say, I know they'd stop and because I witnessed this when I ran across the road. And I did that. I started fighting them and, and the cars were, they were honking the horns and people were hollering and people took, uh, they felt sorry for me and they were hollering at these two guys and that figures because this is one guy and these two big goons are, are uh, using me for a punching bag. And consequently they left. I knew I was safe then. Oh, when I was in the barn, I, well, I looked up and I said, God, if I get out of this, I'm going to quit the business. Well, I might have said that five times in my life. And three days later or five days later, I'd get that phone call and I'd be right back in the mess, in the, in the, in the mix. Because, uh, I don't know, a lot of it was the adrenaline and uh, the challenge and, and the excitement of it. Plus the money counted a little, I guess. And uh, when I was on that road, I was, I just, I got, I remember getting up and a young fellow in a Volkswagen Beetle asked me if I wanted to ride. He took me in the, to Milford and I had him drop me off at Buster's house and I couldn't give him any money because I didn't have any. My money was in the barn. And uh, that evening, Buster and I went back to the <clears throat> farmhouse Again, no one was home. We went into the barn, and I had a pair of gloves now with a towel. <laughs> and I picked up the money and the um, dice, put them in the towel, took, went back to Buster's, and, uh, and everybody was safe. And 
That's my story, folks, and I'm sticking to it. That was John Farrell, also known as Fast Jack. For so many more stories, pick up his fantastic book, Fast Jack, The Last Hustler, on Amazon. As Mark Twain said, I like a good story well told. That's the reason I'm sometimes forced to tell them myself. The Mouth Off is hosted and produced by me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Jennifer LaRue. Learn about my other shows at KyoneWolf.com, on Twitter and Instagram at KyoneWolf, and on Facebook at KyoneWolf Productions. Tell your story at one of our live shows. Dates, themes, tickets, and swag are at marktwainhouse.org slash mouthoff. At that site, you'll also see all the other cool stuff Twain has going on. In addition to funny and fascinating house tours, Twain's tradition of storytelling continues with writing classes and workshops, chances to write in Mark Twain's library, and the very popular Mark My Words series, where authors from around the world come to talk about how current issues are colliding with their work. Follow the Twain House on Facebook and sign up for the newsletter at marktwainhouse.org. Imagine the story you'll tell about being a sponsor for the Mouth Off podcast. For rates, email mouthoffhartford at gmail.com. All right, till next time, whatever happens, make it a good story. Bye.